93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM and Uproxx.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. I'm really excited for today's episode. We're talking with Julian Baker, a great singer, a great songwriter. She has a record coming out on Friday, uh, the 29th. It's called Turn Out the Lights. And um, I love it. Uh, I think it's one of the great records to come out in 2017. And uh, it was a thrill to talk to Julian about it. Uh, Now, I'm guessing that a lot of you out there probably don't know who Julian Baker is. I'm sure some of you have heard of her. I mean, I know some of you are really active on social media or you're reading music websites a lot. So you've probably heard... Her first record, which came out in 2015, is called Sprained Ankle. Very critically acclaimed record. But for the rest of you, you know, Julian Baker is still an artist who's under the radar. You know, that first record came out on a small indie label called 6131. And Julian, you know, she's not one of those artists that has like a huge, you know, promotional push behind her. There's not a lot of radio support for an artist like this. That first record, Sprained Ankle, it it became a critical favorite based on the strength of the tunes. It was one of those records that people felt like that, that they had discovered on their own, like a best-kept secret. And then over time, people started to realize that Julian Baker was the best-kept secret for a lot of people. <laughs> but for those of you who don't know who she is, and by the way, if you clicked on this episode without knowing who Julian Baker is, my hat's off to you. It can be hard to uh, expose yourself to things that are new. I mean, they're, they're, we're all so busy. There's so much content out there. And our brains are wired to sort of embrace the familiar and to push aside things that are foreign or, or unknown to us. But of course, when that happens, it makes it harder for those of us who do podcasts or write reviews to continue to write about new artists, you know, because if the audience isn't there, it can be hard to sustain what you're doing. Before we even get into the episode, I just want to thank you for, for clicking on this episode because I, this is important for me to do from time to time. You know, we, we do a lot of retrospective episodes. We talk about well-established artists on this podcast and I love doing that, but, um, It's also really fun for me to talk to up-and-coming artists uh, and maybe expose my listeners or readers to people that they haven't heard of before. In this podcast, we get into Julian's history. She was born and raised in Memphis. She came up in her teens in that city's punk scene. She played in a band called Forrester. When she started making her own records, she really stripped it back, you know, to the sort of the, the bare essentials of music, just her voice and her guitar. But the passion, the catharsis, the emotional payoffs of punk rock are, are still heard in her music. And I think that really comes across uh, on uh, Turn Out the Lights, which, again, is a very stripped-back record. And yet, when I listen to it, I, I hear them as full-fledged rock songs. Or I can imagine them as full-fledged rock songs if there were drums and maybe a louder guitar on it. It has that spirit. It has that sort of outsized-emotion quality to it. And yet, it, it, it's played by one person. You know, so it has the intimacy of that. It really packs an incredible punch. You know, I, on this podcast, I, I actually likened it to the first Arcade Fire album, Funeral, um, if it had been played by one person you know, instead of eight or however many people are in Arcade Fire. I had a great time talking to her. You know, she just turned 22, but she's really one of the smartest artists that I've talked to in a long time. You know, an artist who clearly thinks about what she's doing, puts a lot of thought into how her music is conceived and presented and recorded and and distributed. And I think that thoughtfulness comes across 
in her music, but it really comes across in this interview. So again, if this is your introdu introduction to her, I think I think you're going to be blown away, <laughs> you know, by her as a person, and then you're going to listen to the records, and I think you'll be blown away by those too. So before we get to that, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this week, and it, it is our old friends at Blue Apron. Now, if you listen to this podcast, or you, you really listen to any podcast, you know that Blue Apron is uh, the top sort of food distribution company out there. You know, they're this company that you sign up for it, they send you great ingredients provided by the best farms and hatcheries and fishermen people and all that stuff, and they send it to you, and they give you recipes for how to turn these great ingredients into into delicious meals. You know, the kind of meals that you think you can't make if you're if you're a busy person, but they make it simple. So you can make this stuff in like 10 or 20 minutes and then you serve it and you're eating like a king or a queen. It's a fabulous thing. And I know a lot of you have already signed up for this service, but for those of you who haven't, I have a special deal just for Celebration Rock listeners. If you go on the website, blueapron.com, you check out the menu, you see what you like, you sign up, you're going to get $30 off your first meal with free shipping. Again, if you go to blueapron.com and you just do slash celebration on that, and you're going to get those $30 off. Again, that's blueapron.com slash celebration to get $30 off your first meal with free shipping. If you want to eat like a king or a queen, I advise that you do that right away. Okay, so again, me and Julian, we talked earlier this month. We talked a little bit about some shows that she was playing around that time. She actually was here in the Twin Cities where I am. She played um, Prairie Home Companion. And then a couple days after that, she was at the Ryman Auditorium opening up for Jason Isbell uh, during one of his shows, during his six-show run in early October. And it was weird because, you know, I live in the Twin Cities, but I wasn't able to see the Prairie Home Companion show because I went to Nashville uh, for a work thing. And I actually saw Jason Isbell's first show at the Ryman, which was incredible, by the way. He played Refugee in tribute to Tom Petty, which, you know for me, was, was, was incredible, on top of just Jason Isbell playing his own songs. But then I left Nashville the day that Julian was in Nashville to open up for Jason Isbell. So like we were like two ships passing in the night. So I'm sort of lamenting that at the, at the beginning of the episode. But the happy ending to the story is that I, I actually saw Julian in the interim <laughs> you know, between the recording of this podcast and the posting. So if you were really worried that I hadn't seen Julian Baker live yet, well, I have seen her live. So if you're worried about that, that's been resolved. Okay, so let's get to my interview. Here's me and Julian Baker talking about her life and career. Julian, it's so great to talk to you. Um, and it's great to talk to you for a lot of reasons. First of all, being, of course, that I really love your new record, Turn Out the Lights. Um, and also because uh, I feel like you and I, in a way, are like two ships passing in the night because we're recording this in early October. And I'm in Minneapolis, and in a few days, you're going to be here in the Twin Cities performing at a Prairie Home Companion, and I'm going to be missing that because I have to go to Nashville, where I'm going to be seeing one of the Jason Isbell shows at the Ryman, but it's not the one you're opening, it's the day before, because the, oh day, my the day you're playing, I have to come back to Minneapolis, so... The, the, the gods are conspiring for me not to see you live, even though I really want to. Are you to. kidding? Yeah, I know. That is such a cosmically tragic <laughs> uh, schedule conflict. I know. Like, it's so close. Wow. I, I know. And, and these are both, I imagine, like, pretty cool things for you. I mean, they're both pretty big shows. Yeah. I mean, the, the Jason Isbell thing I'm really excited about, um, that happened first, and I was, you know, quite excited and uh we had to wait a little bit to announce it but 
um, now that it's out there and it's public knowledge, um, I can talk freely about it. And then Prairie Home Companion was a big surprise too. And I'm just, it's going to be quite the four days or so. <laughs> but, you know, those Jason Isbell shows are really cool because he's using like, it's pretty much all female support. Yeah. And it's rather local people. I don't know. I have, you know, I've been listening to that new record of Jason Isbell's um, since it came out, uh, Jason Isbell and the 400 unit. And it's really insightful and nuanced in a way that I think is uncommon. Uh, there's, especially when there's so much being, uh, thrown into political and social discourse, especially in the realm of art. Um, not all of it is that like refined and insightful. Uh, but I appreciate what he's doing. I'm really excited for those shows. It, like, did he reach out to you personally or like, how did you end up, uh, on that? No, day? it just came through, um, management my manager sean just told me that we got an offer to do jason Isbell show and so um of course i was like yeah let's do it <laughs> and you know as i just said I, I haven't seen you live yet you know the gods are conspiring against that happening at least for now i look forward to doing that eventually but you know my assumption is that when is that when you play live and, and you meet your fans that i'm guessing that you probably have a lot of intense fans just because your music is so intensely emotional and it's so intimate and the things you write about you do it in such a a personal and sort of gut punch way that yeah, i mean it, it affects me as an adult but if i was like a 14 year old kid or something listening to your your music I, w I would imagine it would just have a whole other level of intensity i mean like what's it like when you meet people that like really love your music oh man well you know, sometimes maybe people are intense, but mostly I find that, you know, if people are very intense, it's usually in a, I don't know if this is a, an oxymoron, but intensely gentle. Like, <laughs> fortunately for me, the fans that I interact with, or I, I don't know, I always like feel bizarre saying fans, but the people who listen to my music and attend my shows, so listeners and attendees, <laughs> right, right, are always like very... If they want to share a story with me, the story itself may be intense, but it's there's, you know, some trepidation there of being open about those things because, you know, maybe because just of the nature of the music I write, when people identify very literally with the songs, it's about a quite heavy event in their life, like either a death of a loved one or a coming to terms with their sexuality or like, you know, uh, something about their sobriety. And those are never easy topics to just dive into with a stranger. And so I'm more just respectful of their, you know, bravery for choosing to share that with me. And then appreciative that however vulnerable or uncomfortable maybe that makes them feel that they've chosen to tell me because it imparts this very precious gift to me as an artist to know that 
my songs have been transformed through the use of someone else. You know, they've become not about solely my experience and they no longer pertain to just me, but they are now applicable to someone else. And that gives them purpose and it helps me to process the making of art in general and the experiences that are maybe painful or difficult in my personal life. And, uh, and also I understand that it's not, you know, because my stroke of genius is so powerful that it has an immense impact on these people, but um, it kind of conversely shrinks my musical ego to know that when people share stories about my songs with me, that the music is no longer even about me, Right. which is great because what a relieving thing to know that you're not everything, to know that you're not the center of the universe. And, um, that there are people who relate to my music that are complete strangers um, is a, actually a very comforting and uh, encouraging thing. Yeah. You know, and, and now if you'll excuse me, I want to tell you my personal emotional catharsis as I've been listening to your, to your music, especially your new record, Turn On The Lights, Turn Out The Lights, excuse me. Um, yeah. I would say like in comparison to your first record, Sprained Ankle, like Sprained Ankle to me seems more like a folk record where Turn Out the Lights, for me, there's a bigness to this record in a way. Like when I first listened to it, it almost made me think of like the first Arcade Fire album, except there's no drums on it. You know, just just, just the sort of peaks <laughs> that you hit. And, and Dangerous compliments <laughs> for my ego, but thank you. Well, and, and <laughs> I'm I, like beaming right now. <laughs> well, I mean that in terms uh, of like... I have a strong emotional connection to the first Arcade Fire record. Oh, really? Was that, go on. Was that a big record for you yeah. growing up? It was so good. I have all these memories. The first song I ever heard by Arcade Fire was... Was it... Um, oh my gosh. Uh, neighborhoods oh yeah or tunnels um oh my gosh and i just had never heard music like that before it was wild like i mean because so infrequently do you hear something that's not like a version of rock that you already like but done in a new way by a new artist but it is a execution of songwriting that you could not have conceptualized or like, I don't know. It was just brilliant. Yeah. And uh, it's also so simple. Like so many of the songs on that first Arcade Fire record are two or three chords. Like There's one that's a bass line that just oscillates between two notes. And it's great. It's brilliant and very moving. And I thought like, wow, how amazing that this band is making such dynamic music with so little embellishment you know yeah but now i've derailed us i'm sorry no no that's great i mean for me there's something that you do with your voice on this new record even more than the first record where like when you hit the chorus there's a certain intensity that your voice has where if you pushed it a little bit too far it would be like maybe shouty or shrill and if you didn't push it enough it would it wouldn't come off but the you hit this thing in your voice where Every time I listen to it, like especially like thinking about like appointments, for instance, the single, 
I almost like I, I can be listening to the song and enjoying it, and then you hit that point, and it's like this Pavlovian thing where I think I'm going to cry. Like you, you, you have this thing in your voice where it's like you just. And I, I'm just wondering if you were aware of that as a singer, where you're like, if I know that if I sing it this way, it's gonna, it's gonna kill. You know? Do you know that, or is that just instinctual? No, no. I think. Uh, I mean. I am not aware of that. I think it is more of a, like a reflexive or I don't want to say a habit, but just a something that is learned by modeling, like, and then me getting more confident with my voice and the actual range of my, uh, like singing voice. Um, because after all, like, you know, several things changed. Like I, I quit smoking and I sing every day, um, because it is my job. Um, and I can devote a lot more attention to it than trying to mumble quietly in a dorm room. And then also scratching my vocal cords to death with trying to scream over a, a, you know, into a crappy PA, um, and at a, at a show where I'm playing with like a full band. Um, and then, you know, mix that with all manner of treating my voice poorly. But then finding out that I have those capabilities that I was not aware of, um, I think inspired me to see how I could use this tool to my advantage. Um, and, you know, so that is the thing that influenced the literal timbre of my voice. Yeah. But then like introducing those climactic parts into a song, I think is just indicative of the, the music that I listened to growing up. Um, the songs which moved me most always included these moments of like triumphant ballad style, um, widening, you know, like there was a point where for lack of a better word, you know, me and my less articulate friends in middle school referred to it as the big part. There's always the big part (laughs) that you want to get to in the song. You know, there's the part right after the third chorus in Bruce Springsteen's Badlands that's like an extra high energy chorus that just makes you want to freak out because Bruce is just kind of yelling and it's awesome. And then if you listen to a Manchester Orchestra song or a Color Revolt song or even an Arcade Fire song, um, the intensity gradually ramps up into a point that you feel is like the most ultimate release of emotion where, you know, in a lot of those bands, the singer is somewhere in between singing and screaming and the control of the voice is a little bit lost, but just because there's so much emotion going into it. Yeah. And, uh, that's something I really love about songwriting. That's maybe a convention of songs, you know, that every song has the narrative pyramid of, you know, rising action and then climax and then resolution. Yeah. But 
It is so because I think it's appropriate and it feels gratifying for the passion in a, a moment within a song to reflect maybe the intense subject matter of the lyrics. Well, and, um, and it's a risky thing I too. I think that's just. Yeah, I, think, I, I mean, I think it's a risky thing, too, because if, if you don't pull it off, it can be corny or it can fall flat. And you reach for those moments a lot on this record. And again, I feel like when you reach for it, I get that feeling in my chest like every time. And I'm like, oh, my God, where did this come from? I, it's like I can't stop myself. I'm like going to start weeping here, you know, in front of everybody. No. If I have headphones on, I have to like be careful where I listen to your record or else I'll be a mess yeah. <laughs> in public. <laughs> oh no. I mean, as a compliment. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I, I do take it as a compliment, but something else too, that it's like, it's high stakes to write those parts, you know, when, but as with many other things on the record, whether it's hitting higher notes or being, more diverse in the in the instrumentation and including strings. Uh, I didn't want to limit myself based on fear of what I could execute live because, well, you know, first of all, I as a listener, I enjoy when things are not exactly the same as the record live, yeah. and the challenge for me is then finding ways that maybe don't exactly reproduce to a boring amount of like identical similarity, the songs, but they find a way to convey the same intensity in a live setting with the tools that I would have at my disposal. And so when we were tracking, I think it's a note on clause, but like to hit that note, I had to stand in this really bizarre way where I look like I'm about to go on a race. There's like one foot forward and I'm bending down like uh, (laughs) just shouting at the microphone. And I kept thinking like, how am I going to execute this live? Am I going to stand like Josh Scoggin from the chariot and just like kneel down to hit this note or what shall I do? But I didn't want that to deter me from doing something that I thought would sound good and make the best piece of art, you know? Yeah, you're going to have to do like a lot of like crunches or something or like stay in good shape when you're on the road to sing these songs, oh, yeah. I think. Um, you know, I was, uh, yeah, I talked before like just about the bigness of this record and, you know, and I likened it to the Arcade Fire, the, the, the funeral record. Um, but the difference is, is that, you know, there's a, you know, there's a lot going on in these songs instrumentally, but you don't have drums. You know, the, the sort mm. of big sounding band isn't behind you. So you have these big songs that are essentially, I think, rock songs, and yet there is that kind of intimacy that you had on the first record, and I'm wondering why you chose to do it that way. Well, first of all, thank you for calling my songs rock songs. Um, <laughs> do you consider them rock songs? I, uh, I don't know what I consider them. I guess I just consider them just songs. Like, I never know how to categorize my music. I've never been good at that. Even when I was in a band, I was like, I don't know what we sound like. One of our songs sounds like Uncle Tupelo, and the other one sounds like Circus Survive. So make of that what you will. <laughs> and the same is true of this record. I think 
there's such a a variety of influences that I didn't, you know, I didn't know what exactly like a specific singer songwriter style I would be going for. But um, I didn't want to use drums simply because I liked whether it was intentional or just um, a product of the environment for a sprained ankle, the sparseness of that record shifted the focus for me, like later going back and thinking about that record as the creator, it shifted the focus for me from intricate or flashy instrumentation or trying to show off maybe my musical prowess uh, or even like production quality. It shifted it all from that into the integrity of the the lyrics, the poetry of the song, and then just how the song was arranged. And there's artists that I listen to like an Elliot Smith or a Paul Simon that or even, you know, this is the second time I've brought up Bruce Springsteen, but I just happen to be talking about the boss a lot. Um, so that's no problem on this podcast, about, by the way, like talk, exactly boss away. All right. I will <laughs> like think of, think about uh, a record like born to run. That's got tracks that are eight minutes long with meandering saxophone solos and guitar key changes and piano riffs. And then after making that, Bruce Springsteen makes Nebraska. Right. And Nebraska was demos and could have been turned into full band, save for that those songs before all of that embellishment was added were great songs with their own integrity that held up. And I want to continue to write songs like that. And I take it as sort of a challenge. Like I remember writing some of the songs on Sprained Ankle and listening to songwriters like, you know, Elliot Smith, Paul Simon, or even like a right away great captain and thinking, can I write a song that I want to perform that doesn't bore me with two chords and writing something like good news where I intentionally limited myself in order to overcome like a creative challenge that I think made me a stronger songwriter. And so I wanted to work with the maybe self-imposed challenge of less is more like, all right, if I want to put in some textural strings or, more guitar layers or, or vocal melodies, then that's fine. But let's see what kind of dynamic can be pulled off using maybe just the voice yeah. um, and maybe just the guitar, you know, things like that. Yeah, that's an interesting thing, you know, kind of framing it as a challenge in a way for yourself. Do you, see, do you ever envision maybe wanting to go the other way where you make your own pet sounds, you know, or some really elaborate kind of studio creation that is, you know, like with orchestrations and, and really blowing out your songs in that direction. Do you, do you think you'd ever want to do something like that like on another record? Man, I don't know. I, I think it might. And this is another thing I was nervous about with this record, which probably seems ludicrous <laughs> to anyone who has heard the record. Um, and here's like how few 
instruments are on it. But I was afraid that now with uh, more tools and resources at my disposal, I would clutter and overcrowd the songs or that I would paralyze myself with option anxiety because I would introduce all these intricate parts and feel like I, I couldn't simplify any of them and then it would just you know kind of reach a critical mass where it all caved in and it was too complex for itself because I do have um a propensity I'm sure you know this from like 10 minutes of talking to me <laughs> to overcomplicate things you know uh and so I think maybe sometimes those self-imposed limitations are good because they force me to try to be more concise um try to eliminate non-essential things um, because given free reign, I think I could quite easily go off the deep end into maximalist abyss, which for some people, um, a record that comes to mind, you say like pet sounds, uh, a record that I really love that is maximalist to a T is the golden echo by Kimbra. And, you know, that's an artist who's very involved in the production process and has a genius mind about song crafting. But I bet, you know, like we're polar opposites in how we write and how we envision music, which isn't a bad thing because I'm, that record's brilliant. So, See, I, my impression of you from talking with you just for like, you know, 15, 20 minutes or so is that you seem to have a fair amount of clarity on what you want to do. Like you seem like, you know, as sort of emotional and cathartic as your music is, you seem fairly analytical about writing songs and how you want those songs to be presented. Like, you know, cause I, I talked to some artists who don't really know how to articulate that. Maybe they have a good idea about how to do it, but they're not sure how to talk about it. But I mean, you seem to have a really firm grasp on what you want to do. Mm. That's my impression. True. <laughs> I think maybe it is just that I'm a, I'm a very verbal communicator and I know this about myself, uh, as well as a person who is maybe analytical is the right word, but also can get, you know, obsessive about, for me, it's music. And a lot of the people that I most identify with, um, or relate to, uh, in a songwriting sense are, creative people that are the same, that we have trouble turning our brains off. Yeah. And so the constant ruminating that makes me think and think and think and think and think about the songs I'm creating is not really something that I have control over. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's just something that is part of my being. Like, I always talk about uh, Cam from Sorority Noise, who actually played uh, Woodwinds on the record. Um, he's the same way. Like, that guy is the only person I know that makes more voice memos and song drafts than me. But it's because there's no way to stop the kind of perpetual cascade of thought except for to externalize it. And that's, you know, the primary purpose music serves in my life anyway, so... You know, like, yeah, as we're talking about production choices here, I, I just remembered, I don't know if you saw this, but Jack Antonoff mentioned you in an interview wanting to work with you. And, and, and of oh, course, yeah. and he's worked with Lord and Taylor Swift and, you know, some of the biggest pop stars in the world. Um, 
how, I guess, interested or knowledgeable are you of that side of the music business, the sort of pop side? Does that interest you at all? Or because I mean, you've been working in the, in a sort of DIY underground, uh, you know, realm, you know, for most for all of your career so far. But like, how much of that are you aware of, and does that interest you at all? Oh man, there's so many things that I uh, there's so many like facets of this. So first of all, <laughs> I took it as an enormous compliment um, for Jack to say that, um, and then also like you know I think he's a really interesting example to use because while I think uh, the the perception of him is like a a guy that's an influencer in like the pop sound of Lord and, uh, you know, Taylor Swift. There's also, you know, like uh, bleachers, the project that he does is very, um, it's like intricate. It is in essence a pop project, but that's, I don't know. It's sort of like tongue in cheek and it's, it's well put together and very smart and uh, angular. And then, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he was also part of uh, the new St. Vincent record and worked with Annie Clark. And so it has this incredible diversity of people he chooses to work with. And I think, you know, you mentioned coming up in DIY. There's so many things that I want to talk about with that. Because for a long time... I conceptualized underground music as guitar music. Right. But the landscape of music is changing so rapidly that I think, you know, when you think of the hallmarks of underground music, which are that it's accessible to um, basically any level of consumer. It's political, um, but it's also very personal and of its time. And maybe there is quite a bit of social commentary, but it reflects a very vivid snapshot of, of current underground culture. That I see coming through in like beats driven and electronic music just as much as the guitar music that I grew up listening to. And so I think that the capabilities that, um, you know, now it's not hard to get audio editing software and it is not hard to create a song using relatively inexpensive tools and then upload that song for public viewing uh, to a site like Bandcamp. I mean, Bandcamp is amazing. You can share your songs anywhere. And then you can construct sort of this global virtual underground, which I'm not entirely sure I know how it works or like can wrap my mind around it. Not that anyone can, but it's fascinating. And to me, that is just as DIY in its ethos as playing house shows and and selling CDs out of the back of your car. Right. Um, And so when I think about people that have come up through those scenes, like just making music. Also, I don't know. There's so much. I'm sorry. I keep getting distracted. But, you know, (laughs) when people that have come up through any of those scenes as divided by genres still experience that facet of do-it-yourself. 
um, mentality. And so I think that it would be really interesting to collaborate or do co-writes or things, you know, um, because, you know, contrary to it being selling out of musical creativity at some point, if I were to choose to do a co-write or if I were to choose to collaborate with a producer, then it would just be kind of a humbling thing and probably useful to involve someone else and get another perspective and uh, incorporate their creativity into my own so it's not just me calling all the shots. Do, do you think you could ever write songs for other people? Hmm. I, I mean, think so. I mean, definitely when I've participated in, in writing songs with bands, that's essentially what you do. You all come to a jam or a practice with a song you want to write and then two to three or four other people give you their input on what your song should sound like. And, you know, that happens within the the trust and confidence of friends who have committed to being in a band together. But I don't think it's any different than you just bringing a song to someone and saying, I trust your musical, uh, your impulse and your sensibilities. And I want to see what maybe you could offer to the song. Um, so I think I would totally write a song for someone else. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to uh, talk about your background a little bit. I know that you were raised in Memphis. Are you were you also born in Memphis? I was. I was born in Memphis, um, and then we moved around a lot. But we moved back one year before I started kindergarten. So essentially, and, I lived there. And Memphis, of course, is one of the great American cities in terms of well, for a lot of reasons, but certainly in terms of the music that has come out of Memphis. Like growing up there, did you have an appreciation for you know the history of the city, or did that come later on? You know when you're a little older? I think that it, when you grow up in Memphis, you're aware of things like Elvis and Sun Studios and Stax. But I think that it's just because the culture there is so saturated with music history um, that it just happens naturally that you know those things. Um, but one fortunate result of the culture there being saturated with music history is that it's also, you know, that influences the music present and makes it a very musical town. And people that grow up in Memphis, I think, engage with music very readily because of that. Um, so and how that did, was useful for me as a child. I mean, like, how did you get involved in like the local like punk scene there? Because like, um, like the Smith 7 so like, records and stuff I and all heard, that thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, I started playing guitar uh, probably just when I was about 12 or 13, and I was playing guitar just by myself, like teaching myself riffs and things until I started going to shows at the skate park because I found out that the, the bands that I liked that I was discovering on MySpace or whatever were playing there. And at that time, Smith 7 Records also was responsible for booking many of the shows at the skate park. And they would put local bands on as the openers. And after a while of going to those shows, I found out that they also had shows at um, people's houses. And my friends would invite me and say, why don't you come to this house show? And I, of course, I'd never been to a house show before. Uh, and then I 
went and it was amazing. There was no like real production element. Uh, and there was also no division between performer and audience. It was just a combination of people creating music for the fun of it. And, uh, it was like revolutionary for me to see that. And, uh, feel it was actually like quite empowering am i right i mean like a lot of the people that you met back then i mean you still work with them like a lot of them like contributed to this record am i right yeah so actually matthew gilliam who um played drums and forester for the entirety of the time we were a band he still occasionally comes out and plays uh auxiliary percussion with me but he sings on hurtless which is a song about friends and um, it was really neat for me to get to involve him in that and still continue to make music together but also like the woman who plays strings Camille Faulkner that's someone I've known since college and have you know our bands have played shows together and uh, Calvin Lauber who engineered the record at Ardent Studios he is in a band called Pillow Talk and our bands have played together since I was 14 years old. So it's really neat, you know, like to see all those people get to bring their talents um, and choose to share them with me uh, felt really meaningful. And it, it was nice to be able to remain invested in the city of Memphis. Um, and are you in the car? Yeah, I am in the car. I actually just have to. Uh, I'm so sorry. Could you hear the blinker? We could, yeah. I was like, she's either in the car or there's like a UFO next to her right now. Oh, yeah. No, I actually had to hop in the car because I'm uh, headed out to just run a small errand. But, okay. Well, I'm almost yeah. done. I just wanted to ask, too. Like, I, I know that you said you recorded at Arden Studios, which is, of course, you know, one of the really famous recording studio. A lot of great records have been made there. And am I right, like, that you met, you met Jody Stevens when you were there from Big Star? Yes, it was incredible. He's such a gentle person, though. Uh, we were recording for six days, and on the last day, he stuck his head into the studio and asked to listen to some of the songs, uh, which was pretty surreal, because how do you deal with Jody Stevens just listening to your music? Um, but he was so nice. And, um, yeah, we just stood around, and I tried to politely probe him with questions about his musical past and uh but he is a very approachable and kind like, did he have any, did guy. he did he have any good Alex Chilton stories Oh my gosh I didn't even I, I didn't want to like <laughs> probe too far and so I just let him tell stories about the bands in like a broader sense of just all of them together yeah. But, yeah. And, and did he impart any advice to you? He, like, he was really kind and really eloquently put to that. The thing I remember him saying most of our whole conversation, we were standing around talking about local music and kind of the scene of different towns. And he said, in some towns that it seems like everybody is on a ladder and maybe people are trying to get up that ladder and push other people off of the ladder. But in Memphis, it just seems like everybody is on their own ladder. 
And I thought that was so sweet. And it kind of portrays that, like, collaborative individuality where everyone is cheering each other on and trying to contribute to each other's success, but also encouraged to make something of their own that's, like, wholly innovative um, that really reflects the mentality of the Memphis art scene, I think. Yeah. Well, that is awesome. It's uh, it's good to hear that. Well, well, Julian, I know you're running errands now. I know you're busy, so I'm going to let you go. Aw, well, but thank th- you. Yeah, I'm so sorry that I should have muted it. That was so rude. <laughs> I was going to just continue the interview until whenever. Oh, no, that's good. It's I mean, such I, a great conversation. Yeah, I feel like we're, you know, we're, we're road tripping together right now, you know, which is, which is yeah. fun. Like, we're just tooling around Memphis together. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I think I'll, I think I'll get off on the corner here and let you go do what you got to do. But, uh, okay. th- thank you so cool. much. I'll let you out. Well, it's been great talking <laughs> to you today. You too. And again, the record, turn out the lights, great record, gut punch of a record, uplifting record. I think people are going to really yeah. love it when it comes out. So good luck with it. And, uh, I will see you live at some point unless again, the gods can continue to conspire against me, but I think it will happen very soon. Good. Well, I'm going to hold you to it and I'll see you soon. All right. I hope you have a great rest of the day. Yeah, you too, Julian. Take care. All right. Thank you. All right. That was me and Julian Baker. Uh, you know, again, like I was really impressed by her. I, I love her music, but you know, it's always amazing. You know, as someone, I, you know, I talk to a lot of musicians and uh, it's, it's rare to find musicians who are really reflective and really good at sort of articulating their process and, and talking about like why they do the things that they do. And Julian is, already has that. I'm just dazzled by like her intelligence. She's a very smart person. I think she's going to go far. Guys, thanks again for listening to this episode. I just want to say I want to do a shout out to uprocks.com. I had a couple good pieces last week. I actually ended up going to Springsteen on Broadway. Saw Bruce Springsteen. I sat in the fourth row of the Walter Kerr Theater, which has like, it's like a 960 person capacity place. I wrote about seeing Bruce. I wrote 2,400 words on it. <laughs> went way deep just talking about the boss that ran on Uproxx last week. I also wrote about MGMT. Uh, they have a new single that they released last week. And I wrote about their 2010 record, Congratulations. You know, like this new single is being pitched as a comeback. And uh, the record that they're coming back from is Congratulations. But I actually love that record. So I wrote a tribute to that. So those are two stories I think you guys would like. You can check them out on uprocks.com. But thanks for listening to this episode. You know, again, I I say this every week, but I mean it. uh, Without you guys, there would not be a podcast. So thank you for your support. Thanks for talking about us on social media, leaving reviews, um, just telling your friends about us. Uh, These things have really sustained us and and helped us to to grow and to, to... be here to talk about music and to interview great people like Julian Baker. So thanks again, guys. All right, guys. Well, we will be back again next week with more Celebration Rock. Take care, guys.